Amen. Go ahead and take a seat, please. And one last time, if you would open up your Bible to Philippians, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi is where we'll be. Chapter 4, verse 10. Good. By way of introduction this morning, I thought it would be uh, helpful to bring what we're looking at this morning up this way. There are two topics uh, that preachers I've noticed can go to the extreme on, um, either on talking about them way too much or avoiding them altogether. Uh, and the first topic is end times theology. Like you ever come across that person who is so into their charts about the end times, they've got their tinfoil hat, every time the moon turns a shade of red, uh, John Hagee down in San Antonio writes a book about it. This guy over here is so consumed with the book of Revelation in such a way where he's paranoid, he opens up the New York Times and sees the news from what is in the book of Revelation. You understand what I'm saying? So you have that side over here, but then on the other side, you see there's another person who sees that guy and says, you're absolutely crazy, I want nothing to do with that. And goes the opposite extreme and avoids the conversation about end times theology altogether and misses out on the, the joy of what Revelation 1-3 says. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so that person, by avoiding the conversation altogether, misses out on the hope that we have from knowing how this broken world will be restored in Jesus Christ. So that's, that's one topic that we can go to the extreme on. That would be end times theology. What's the second one? Well, I would say the second one would be uh, having to do with the topic of generosity or, or money, finances. We've all seen that guy on TV, that preacher who at, at, at like two o'clock at night on TV says, sow a seed of $500 and God will bless you, right? And that guy talks about how you're gonna get um, a new car or something ridiculous like that. And we would call that the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Basically, you see God as a genie uh, in a bottle that you pray to, and he, he answers your prayers to get stuff. You prioritize the gift over the gift giver. And so what does the other guy do? He says that, sees that posture, and he goes, I absolutely want nothing to do with that. And so he avoids also the conversation of talking about generosity and finances altogether as well. And he misses out on what the Bible actually has to say. And if you know this, if you've been in church any length of time, Jesus says a lot about money in the Gospels. Paul says much in many of his letters. Many of his letters, at the end of them, he will say things like, thank you for giving, here's what's going on, I'm getting a collection, I'm taking it down to Jerusalem. And we get something like that here this morning. And so as we come to the end of our 14 weeks that we've been in the letter of, to the church of Philippi, let me just catch you up to speed one more time. What has happened is that the apostle Paul is in prison in Rome, and there is a group of people who love him, care about him, have been in partnership with him, and they have sent a brother named Epaphroditus, and they've said, hey, 
find out what's going on with Paul, give him this gift from us, and then come back to us. And so Paul sends, after Epaphroditus comes, he sends Epaphroditus back with this letter that we're looking at. And he gives them a thank you for their financial gift that they've given to them. And I thought it, was, it would be useful at this moment to, to also say thank you to you. And so um, I, I think I've said this in so many terms over the, maybe a few weeks ago, but uh, I have a, a little book that I keep all of my um, my to-do list in, and, and, and I, I do that every week. It keeps me focused because my mind kind of goes all over the place, but I don't have it written down, forget about it. And so I, I write it down. One of those things I've written down is write thank you cards. And I never get done with that one every single week because there's always more blessing that I've received on behalf of the church. And so I just want to say whether you have helped us move into our home, uh, whether you have uh, given us a card or you have given us a meal, um, anything else like that, I want you to know that uh, on behalf of myself and Justine, we see that and, and just in this, this moment, I want to say thank you uh, for that. However, what if you wrote me a letter and then I responded with something like this? What if I said, um, I'm glad that you thought to think about me, Church of Bethesda. Uh, not that I really needed anything, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to be lifted up. I know how to have a lot. I know how to have a little. Whether you gave me the gift or not, I have learned that Christ is my strength through all things. Now, if I wrote that to you, you might hear that and go, you're welcome, I think. I think. You're welcome. Did he say thank you? I'm not really sure. Uh, it seems kind of odd, right? Now, you understand what I'm doing here. I'm essentially paraphrasing what Paul is going to say to the Philippians this morning. Is he giving a thankless thank you? Or is he seeing something deeper? I would argue that he sees something deeper. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. at this morning. And as we see what's deeper, we're going to see ultimately. Here's my hope for this morning. That we're going to see that God is our provider. So I don't know what situation you find yourself in this morning. I know the situation of many of us in here, there's those of us who are dealing with challenges, especially when it comes to our finances and what we need. We are really taking seriously the prayer, give us this day our daily bread, some of us right now. And so my hope is that you would see God as your provider. You would see what it means to be a gospel partner in being part of what we do here as a church. And you would do that out of what he's provided you. And then lastly, wherever you are, you would walk out of here living in the grace and the peace that he has. But with that being said, let me pray for us and then we'll be underway. Lord, we love your word. That's why we're here right now. is because through seeing your word, it is a window into knowing who our God is. Lord, some of us are saying, I'm anxious, and we need to come before you and say, Lord, give me the peace that surpasses all understanding. And so, Lord, would you give us the peace that surpasses all understanding through the wellspring of the truth of your word? Show us what is right and beneficial so that we could then live accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 10 says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, and now at length, that now at length you have revived your concern for me, Paul says. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. 
So he begins right out of the gate here, and he, what we see is he's showing gratitude for the generosity of others by rejoicing, not in what they gave him, but rejoicing in the Lord. Do you see how he does that? He actually never says thank you for the gift. In the all 10 verses that we have here, of 10 through 20, he never actually says thank you for the gift. He does something far better. You notice he doesn't fall into being greedy. He doesn't say, thank you, can I have some more? He doesn't fall into flattering them and says, oh, you shouldn't have. That was so awesome. Give me a little bit more. He doesn't do that. And he doesn't puff up their ego. He doesn't forget to, to thank them. I like the way Tony Morita and Francis Chan, who I've been reading their commentary throughout this series, they put it this way on how we're supposed to apply what Paul is saying here. They say, follow Paul's example. If someone has blessed you, thank God for them in front of them. I love that. You don't just thank them for the gift. You thank God for them in front of them because what Paul is seeing here is that when these people are being faithful, it is God working through them. So he looks at them and says, I'm so thankful for this moment because when I see you being obedient to bless me, I see God's provision working through you. What a blessing. Here's one of the things that I know. Being in ministry can can easily fall into being a thankless task. Do it long enough, everybody expects that you're supposed to do it, right? Because you've just been the one doing it. And, and people can forget along the way to say thank you. And I wanna ask you, if you are someone who has been blessed by a certain ministry area here at Bethesda, have you looked that person in the eye, maybe in front of others, and said, you know, when I see the work that you're doing, I'm not just thankful for you, I'm thankful, I'm thankful to God for you because when I see you moving, man, I see the Lord moving through you. I'm so appreciative of that. If I could, if you don't mind. Like in this season of gratitude, honestly, Paul, I didn't even think about it, how this connects with Thanksgiving. This makes so much sense. What a moment we can thank the Lord for what he's done here in our church in this Thanksgiving season. Man, here's something I'm thankful for. I am so thankful that as a pastor, I don't have to do this all by myself, but I have a strong group of elders. Do you know this, that when I was looking for the church, I was like, Lord, I don't know where you're gonna place us, but here's my prayer. Let me not have to go to a church where I would have to establish elder, uh, establish elder congregationalism, establish a group of elders that would lead the church. I'm so glad to walk into a church where there are strong men. Like you should know, there's not like a, a weak link among them. These are all godly men who pray regularly on behalf of the church, who, who want to be shepherds to every single one of you. And I'm so thankful that I get to lead alongside of them. I'm thankful for our deacons. I'm thankful for the fact that when I see them, it reminds me of something that is so rare. I've pointed this out before. Many of you have noticed this as well before. Do you realize how odd it is to have so many men in a church that are eager to serve and to lead in God's house? That, that is something that, that can be very, very uncommon. I am thankful for every single one of those men that serve. God has been good to us in that way. I'll tell you something else I'm thankful for. I am thankful to God that when my son August comes home from church on a Sunday, Sunday morning and a Sunday afternoon and his little helium voice little angelic sounding helium voice, and he's singing new, new songs that he's learned in Sunday school. I am thankful to God for Kim Cobb and the works that she does with my son every single Sunday. 
when you see the people that serve in God's church, or even the people that are in your life, you look at them and say, I'm thankful to God for you. Do that. Paul then does something that is so Pauline. He takes a tangent. Let me show you. Verse 11. Look at this. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ or through him who strengthens me. So let me ask you a question. Could you honestly say, in your heart of hearts, like when you look yourself in the mirror, like, like get past the, the, the church um, face that you ha- may have on this morning, when you think of who you really are, can you look yourself in the mirror and say, I am content? Are you marked as a person who has contentment in their life. I've been thinking about this all this week. You should know this, that as the guy who has to preach the passage, it slams you in the face first throughout the, 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 the first part of the week before you get up here to do this. I've been asking myself that question. Can I say I am a person marked by contentment? And you see how Paul does this. He goes back and forth. I've been brought low. I've been lifted up. I've had plenty. I've hungered. I've had abundance. I've lacked. Now, I think there's a few things that he says to us in this passage that are beneficial for us. There's many things, but first, you notice that his contentment moves beyond circumstance. This has been a theme that we've been hitting on for the last several weeks. Paul's contentment is not based on whether things are good or bad, high or low, hot or cold. His contentment is grounded in something deeper, and it is grounded in the fact that he is in Christ. You notice that. Go back sometime. Read through the book of Philippians, and look how many times you're going to see those statements. In Christ, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord, being united to Christ, your relationship with him, is what grounds you when things are not okay. It gives you the ability to say, when you're found in Christ, When things are not okay, you can still say, it's okay. Your contentment is based on him, friend. It's not based on what you're going through. Secondly, you see that his contentment, he's had it when he's had nothing, absolutely nothing he's been content. I know it's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. Uh, You'll never know if Christ is enough until Christ is all that you have, right? Paul said, I have been there and I can say Christ is truly enough. And I think back to, I got permission to ask, to, to tell this story. Uh, I think back to when we first got married, uh, Justine and I, we moved down from South Dakota from, from here, um, and we had just gotten married in Gettysburg, went down to Fort Worth, didn't have uh, jobs, so that was kind of naive on our part. We just went, supposed to go to graduate school, supposed to become a pastor, we'll figure out jobs afterwards. Um, we have college degrees. It'll be easy to get a job. And I'm so glad the Lord took that innocence and blessed us. Uh, blessed Justine with a uh, teaching job within four days of us being there. It was incredible provision. But as we're there, within the first couple of days, we realized we didn't have pots or pans, right? We didn't have pots or pans. And so um, we, we have to have our first meal. So Justine opens up the cupboard and she, she looks in the, in the pantry and sees what we have there. And 
And she takes out some food. She goes, I'm going to make you a meal. And I said, well, thank you, awesome. Um, and so she makes the meal. She makes enchiladas. And uh, we sit down to eat the meal. And I go, what's in the enchiladas? And she goes, well, it's what we had. She made tuna enchiladas. And, and we have that. And I'm a new husband, so I eat the food. And the question inevitably comes back and says, what did you think? And, and what's the right answer, gentlemen? It was great, honey. Thank you, right? Right? But we look back at that moment, and we look back at those early days, right, where we were just in, like, the red the whole year, um, get, getting care packages from Langer's Family Foods, her, her parents, and, and getting help from my parents. I was just trying to cobble things together living on ramen. And in those moments where we had nothing, no community, no friends, just figuring it out together, that's the moment, those are the moments where we learn to be reliant on the Lord, so that in the later seasons now, I mean, here's what we learn. I could say, if I could put it this way, those early days helped us to see that we ought to hold tightly to Jesus and have everything else with a, with a loose grip. We found contentment, I think, in those days so that, that now, when no one knew who Aaron was, now, now we're here and it's like there's contentment because we already had it before. Last thing, you notice that Paul says he has contentment when he's had plenty. You expect him to say, I've had contentment when I've had nothing. But he flips it around and then says, I've had contentment when things have been going pretty well. You could maybe imagine, maybe Paul has experienced abundance uh, with Lydia, seller of purple. If you remember back to Acts 16, she's the first uh, female convert in Acts 16 who meets the Lord. And she um, is, because of her, her trade, she is, she is wealthy and so has a home in which the church can meet. You can imagine Paul maybe had some good meals. Uh, maybe he was able to relax a little bit. And he said, even in those moments, I've learned to have contentment. And I think here's the point. You can be greedy whether you're rich or whether you're poor. Your circumstances just reveal what's already in your heart. And I think sometimes th there's Christians who think that unless, you're, unless it, it hurts, you're not doing it right, uh, that you have to be poor purposely to be a good Christian. And yet Paul says, I've been blessed at certain points. I I've had a lot at certain points. And I like, again, the way Marita and Chan put it. that They say we need to trade a prosperity theology and a poverty theology for a Pauline theology. And Pauline theology says sometimes God's going to bless you. And when he does, don't be greedy. Find contentment there. And then sometimes God in his sovereignty will decide that you will not have a lot. Great. Don't be greedy. Find contentment there as well. And so the main point is this. See that whatever circumstances you find yourself in this morning, God is calling you to use this as an opportunity for you to find contentment in him today. And he caps this off, Paul does, with verse 13. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Um, 
If you ever wanted to know what to get your pastor for Pastor Appreciation Month next October, you can get me a t-shirt that says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. You know, if there was ever a verse that has been more butchered um, by being put on the back of sports jerseys and saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, it's going to be Philippians 4.13. Because for so many many of us, we've taken this verse as evangelicals, and we've made it essentially say this. We've made it say, if I just have enough faith, I can believe that God God will get me across that finish line, I'll reach that mountaintop, I'll win that race, you know, whatever it is. One author I was reading says, I can have as much faith as I want. I still won't be able to dunk a basketball. That's just the reality of it. And so what is Paul actually saying when he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What he is saying in context, what he's saying is that he's saying whether I am dealing with poverty or whether I'm dealing with abundance, whatever situation I find myself in, Christ has strengthened me and by strengthening me, strengthening me, he has given me contentment. It might be better if we translate it as I can do all this through Christ who strengthens me. And what's this? living in either poverty or living in either in abundance. And so here's what I want to say to you. If you are dealing with financial trouble, maybe you look at this moment right now and you go, why is God doing this to me? Why do I find myself in this moment, in this circumstance? And I will always want to say, I never know I don't know why people expect this. I never know the answer to the why questions about why God does this, things. But I do know the answer to the what questions. Paul Tripp in his book, Suffering, says that when we go through suffering, we should not waste it. He, sa- he points out that when we go through suffering, it does something to our hearts. It reveals things that we would not have normally seen. It reveals the state of our hearts, the beliefs that we really have about God. Oh, I believe God's enough. Are you sure? Put yourself in a circumstance where you have to really put that to the test and you'll find out. And going through suffering, things like financial hardship, it shows us where our idols are. And so let me ask you a question. And I know it may be challenging, but I think it's worth asking. Can I ask you to pray to Jesus and pray this? Lord, I don't know why you've placed me in this season, but don't waste my suffering. Don't waste my suffering, Lord. Don't waste it. Show, it. show what's in my heart, Lord, in this moment. Show me what is in this season in my heart that I couldn't have been able to see otherwise so that in this season I may learn to have contentment in Christ Jesus, my Lord. So Paul says all of this. And then he goes on to verse 14, and here's what he says. He says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except for you only. Verse 16. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the, and this is the key, the fruit that increases to your credit. And I think kind of the really second main thing that we see here this morning is that we got to see that link between gospel partnership, financial partnership. Those things go together. 
And you see that's what the Philippians were doing. If you go to 2 Corinthians, you don't have to go there, I'll just read it. 2 Corinthians 11, 8, and 9, another church, uh, the church in Corinth that Paul goes to after he's plants the church in Philippi. Later on, he goes to them. And then he's writing to this church in Corinth, and he says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained, and I will refrain from burdening you in any way. So when Paul's writing this to the church in Corinth, what church in Macedonia is he referring to? The church in Philippi. These guys who are poor, who don't have a lot, they're the ones who are funding Paul when he moves on and he goes to other churches afterwards. Out of, they're, they're like the, the, the widow who had the might. She didn't have a lot, but she gave everything. They gave everything to fund the great commission work of church planting so people would know that Christ is worthy, that Christ has died and resurrected, that because of Christ, you can have redemption. Because of Christ, you can have healing in your relationships. That because of Christ, you can see the transformation that can happen in your communities. They said, I'm a part of this business. I want to realize it through Paul. And the church in Corinth is realized in part because of the work of what the Philippians were already doing. And they got to receive this message of forgiveness, of grace, and of peace. And so you ask the question, what's the difference between a consumer and a partner in the church? A consumer is someone who comes to church and just takes. And I want to say this just as a clarification. Maybe you're in a season where there's so much brokenness, like you just crawled into church this morning. I'm not talking about you right now. We're thankful that you're here. But I'm saying for the person who comes to church and after season, man, I'm just, I'm just here to, to take in. That's very different than the partnership that Paul and the Philippians have together. Here's the thing about partnering and giving of, out of our generosity, giving of our financial resources. Money is a tool. It is neither good or necessarily bad. The, the root the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not money in and of itself. And so Paul doesn't mince words. He says, to be a co-laborer with me to fulfill this mission means that you're supporting me along the way. And I'm thankful for that. Now at this point, maybe I've been saying all this and you've been going, all right, preacher, how much do you give? What about you? You're up here talking about giving. What about you? And I'm glad you, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, so, let me, let me address that. Uh, I mentioned just a little while ago, the, the early years when we first got married, I remember talking to a friend of mine and I said, ah, I, I know that I'm supposed to give to my local church, but we've been in the red all year. This is, this is tough. Uh, when, maybe, when do I start giving? And he says, well, now. And I said, well, maybe when we're more financially stable, then we'll contribute and have that joy of giving to the church and being a part of what our church is doing. And I'll never forget what my friend said to me. He says, if you seek in the future to become financially stable, like you'll never get there. He says, start now when it's gonna cost you something. Start now when it's tough. Because, because later on, if you start years from now and you've, you've never already been giving, man, it'll hurt more. But if you start giving now and participating in what the church is doing, 
you'll never miss it. I can tell you that for the last eight years that we've been married, uh, we made a decision early on, within the first, and by early on I mean like first couple months of marriage, that we were going to give the top 10% of whatever we brought home. That's just what we were going to do. And, and that's something that, that we committed to, and it's been a joy to be able to, to be a part of what the church is doing. So you ask the question, okay, what about me? How, what, what, should, what should I give if the Lord is calling me? Not if, he is. What should I give? And I would say, something. Something. Meet with the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? If you're someone here who's, maybe you've been a consumer for a while, and now the Lord's moving in your heart to say, now it's time to really get involved. Now it's time to, to, to put your money where your mouth is. Here's what happens when you do that. You get buy-in. You get skin in the game. All of a sudden, when, when you start investing into the life of the church, what happens is you start caring about what goes on around here. You care about what's being taught. You care about, about what's happening in the, the life of the church. Hey, when's that fellowship hall, hall going to be done? Someone tell me about what's going on there. By the way, you should know those deacons are working really hard. They've done a really good job on that. One thing I do know, by the way, about building projects is that they never end on time. And so we just want to say thank you for your patience. We're looking at January-ish, January. Yeah, one, one, more, one more month was what we're looking at. Thank you for your patience. And so you all of a sudden start caring more deeply in a way when your pocketbook reveals what the treasure is that's in your heart. But what are we ultimately giving towards? Just for a building? Just to turn these lights on? Just to pay for someone's salary? What are we really giving towards? Glad you asked that question too. If I could put it in one statement, I'd put it this way. We give to fund the great commission work of making disciples of all nations. I'm like saving a sermon for later about what's the mission of the church. I can't help it. I got to bring it out now. The mission of the church is to make disciples, y'all. That's what it is. The most important words that we, that we get on this are the last words of Christ. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father and of the Son and all of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's, that's the great commission. And so the church that is a part of that work is a church that is on the mission of Jesus Christ. And so the reason why we do a spotlight, a mission spotlight uh, almost every single Sunday, the reason why we put, put our friends up here on the screen or we have a Q&A and we do all this, it, it's for a purpose. It's so that you would see them, see what they're a part of, see the mission work that they're doing all over the world and go, yeah, that's what I want to be a part of. It's our way of being accountable to you and saying, this is what, what your resources are going towards, so that people will know that Christ is worthy of their lives through the work that you see through our missions partners. It goes to, to fund full-time pastors, not only myself, but you care that much about our youth that you've decided for a full-time pastor, that's worth it for our youth to know that Jesus is worthy. You have decided, through all the different kinds of tools at our disposal, whether it's CR, whether it's, whether it's Awana, whether it's any of our other programs, I think of Adrian Rogers. Adrian Rogers, one of the things that he said was that the programs of the church are like stretchers that you bring sick people on in to the hospital so that they would be healed. Think of our programs of the church are like that. We bring people in so that they would meet Jesus. And those things cost resources. And so we say, I thank God for each of you who are serving in that way and are contributing in that way. 
What business are we in? We're in the business of funding and being a part of the Great Commission work to make disciples. And Paul says, when you do this, there's incredible fruit that happens. The fruit of your generosity. There's a fruit that increases to your credit. Um, we have IRAs, individual retirement accounts. I like the way Alistair Beck puts it. He says, when you are part of funding the Great Commission, you have an ERA account. He called an individual eternal account. You are preparing and you are receiving a, a fruit that lies in the future. And that comes in an eternal reward. I don't ever recall giving towards something that was worth it, especially in the investment of reaching lost people that will go to hell if they don't ever meet Christ. I have never found myself giving towards that mission and then afterwards going, I wish I hadn't done that. I always go, Lord, it didn't belong to me in the first place. It's yours. Here, have it, take it. And we just simply want you to experience that joy with us. Paul ends and he says, he says this in verse 18. He says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my joy will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory, his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so you see that language, a fragrant offering. This is an act of worship when you are giving. It's an act of worship. And Paul ends with this important truth statement that we see. I think you could sum it up this way, third and lastly here, that God is our provider. And it's for our good that you would see this. And it's for his glory. In his partnership with the Philippians, he says, in this partnership, you're helping fund me so that I can go plant churches in Corinth and other places. I'm in prison right now, y'all, but he says, I-, I can't give you anything back, so let me tell you how I'm gonna repay you. I'm repaying you through the supply of the Lord. My God will assume responsibility, and he will provide for your needs according to the riches in Christ. Who, at the end of the day, gets the better end of the deal? The Philippians, because they get more of Christ. And so the thing about generosity, this is what I really want us to get, is that it actually does not start with you. Generosity starts with your provider. And it's your provider that has given you everything that you need. There's a part of us that honestly goes when we go, when we hear someone calling us to be generous, there's a part of us that naturally wants to go, that's mine. I earned that. I worked hard for that. That's mine. Whether that's time, whether that's money, whether that's something else. Blood, sweat, and tears. Mine. But when we consider that first, it was God who is giving us the breath that we are breathing this very moment. When we consider our homes, our jobs, our very lives, all ultimately come from him, I think our perspective changes. Like there's nothing that we can really truly say is ours. It's all his. And you could take this even more spiritually. Take this up a notch. What spiritual gift do you have that you earned that you didn't receive? Not one. What did you do in your sin to earn your salvation? Nothing. God provided that. Are you really capable of making yourself less anxious, more loving, less hateful, more gracious? Haven't I been saying this entire time that Christ is the one who works out your salvation through you? He's the one who does that. 
And so here's the point. Everything from our relationships to our possessions, our lives, our salvation, it is all a gift from him. And so if he has blessed us tremendously, out of the overflow of what he has given us, we serve, we be a part of his work to make disciples of all nations. And Paul I could say more on Paul, but Vern Charette, my professor uh, in seminary, I remember the first day of, sc- of school, he sits down with us, there's 10 of us. Um, he said two things that, uh, he said one thing that terrified me uh, and another thing that challenged me. The first thing he said, he says, there's 10 of you right here, one in 10 of you will retire from ministry, the rest of you are all gonna sell insurance by the time this thing is done. That was the first thing he told us. Um, and then the second thing he told us, he says you need to be faithful, do your devotions, all of that spiritual discipline uh, to sustain in ministry. But the second thing he said is, show me your pocketbook and I will show you where your ultimate treasure lies. We invest in what we treasure. And so my question is, what do you treasure really? How's the Lord calling you to change? How's the Lord calling you to adjust? Do you really believe, Paul, when he says God's gonna supply every single need of yours, do you really believe that in this situation, in this moment? Maybe you need to pray according to the prayer that we looked at last week. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let the Lord be your provider this morning, and let the Lord convict you for where you and I are called to be cheerful givers. The last words of this book of this letter, Paul says, as we come to the end, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And here is the truth, friends, at the end of all of this. The truth is that everyone in the end acknowledges that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. As you read how Paul says, I greet you on behalf of myself, on behalf of some of my friends, and then on behalf of Caesar's household. That should make you smirk a little bit because you know how God is doing a subversive act to get through to his people. It's in the end as if God is looking at this awful situation that Paul is in, and he's saying, do you see what I'm doing? I'm using my servant to bring lost people to know Christ in the most unlikely place. A madman is on the throne, and yet I'm saving people in his household. In this world that is so dark, in a culture that is so confused, right here on Rome's Capitol Hill, I'm bringing people to know who my son is. And it is a foretaste of what is yet to come, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what's going to happen in the end. And so my prayer for you is this, that you would know this. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grace that reminds you that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. The grace that tells you that even if you die, you will gain Christ. The grace that tells you that that the strength that you have is in him to stand firm in the midst of this dark world. The grace of knowing the son who forsook all things and became man and died in our place. The grace that reminds you that you're sanctified and he is working out that sanctification according to his good pleasure. The grace that despite your sin, 
God gives you his own son's righteousness so that he would look at you and by faith you would be able to say, I am justified. The grace that makes you a citizen of heaven so that you can run the race set before you and you don't have to look backwards but you strain forward to what lies ahead. The grace that tells you that when you pray, God actually hears you when you pray and he gives you peace when he asks for it. The grace of the good news that despite the suffering of this present world, our joy is found in Christ alone. Let us be the kind of people that faithfully serve him and his kingdom and bring glory to his name. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda. M as in Mary, E as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Blessed day.